I am excited about this morning and just the time that we're going to get together in God's Word. We are going to be continuing our series through the book of Isaiah. Um, but before we get to that, though, uh, I just wanted to start out this morning reading to you guys a select few passages that will help set the tone of what we're going to be looking at today in the book of Isaiah. I want to pick up here and beginning with Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. It says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. A very similar passage I want to read is in Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like for me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers. And I will put my word in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded. I'm going to jump ahead and read out of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37, picking up here in verse 24, and it says this, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in the midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. In Micah 5, it says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from you one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brother shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in, strength of the Lord, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Just got one more for you hanging there. Psalm 34 says this in verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, I know there's quite a few different passages that I just read to you, but I hope that as I was reading these passages to you guys, that you were catching on to the theme and to the subject of what those passages were talking about. That being the coming hope in the Messiah, and our true king to come. Well, for us, it's the king that has come. But for the nation of Judah at this time, they were still awaiting this king. And as I said before, as I read these passages to you this morning, I hope it helps set the stage of what we're looking at 
Uh, because in Isaiah 42, it's only going to be the continuation of the same theme and subject of the coming Messiah. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles with me, we can go ahead and open up there to Isaiah chapter 42. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 42, looking at verses 1 through 12. But as you're turning there, though, I just want to do a quick review over how we've got to this point in the chapter or in the book of Isaiah and why this is such a significant turning point in his message so far. You see, Isaiah up to this point has been compiling this message to the nation of Judah in response to their sins and to their alliances made with other pagan nations. Ultimately, because of this, they have now been left abandoned spiritually alone because of the fact that they have turned away from their God Almighty. So Isaiah is building and compiling this message to them, addressing their lack of faithfulness and their lack of obedience to the one true God of Israel. And as a result, God is bringing judgment upon them as, they, as he did to their counterparts, the nation of Israel. Because if you guys can remember, at one point, Judah and Israel were once one nation. They were the nation of Israel. But after the death of King Solomon, the nation was split in two. They had the northern kingdom Israel, whose capital was Samaria. Then you had the southern kingdom Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem. And very similarly, the nation of Israel went astray. They went after their idolatrous ways. And they turned from God, and as a result, God brought judgment upon them, never to restore them again. In a very similar way, the nation of Judah is now acting like Israel. They have turned from God, and they have become an adulterous nation. And because of that, now God is bringing judgment upon them. And that's what the whole first half of the book of Isaiah is about. The coming judgment and disaster upon the nation of Judah because of their lack of obedience and faithfulness to him and in the covenant which he made with them. So, as I said, as very similar to the nation of Israel, God is going to raise up a nation to come against Judah. So God brought the nation of Assyria to come and judge the nation of Israel. And now God is raising up the nation of Babylon to come and to judge Judah. But now, as Victor revealed to us a couple weeks ago, we see this shift in the message in the book of Isaiah and how the first half was about judgment, and now the second half is about restoration and redemption. But I also want to say this. This doesn't mean that Judah is going to escape their judgment. The judgment will come, and they will face captivity. But what Isaiah, what we're going to look at today, is now the turning point in this book of the restoration of hope that Judah will have in God as the remnant of Israel. So, and this will be what we'll see throughout the rest of the book of Isaiah is this, this theme of restoration and redemption. So let's read this together here in uh, verse, pick it up here in verse 1 in Isaiah 42. Y'all can stand with me as we read God's word. says this in verse 1, says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. 
Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Picking up here in verse 10, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the deserts and cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the, the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountain. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Let us pray. Lord, as we continue this series through the book of Isaiah, I pray that you will truly prepare and soften our hearts for what you are going to reveal to us. As we have said, the first 39 chapters of this book is about the coming judgment, but God, the rest of this book is about your coming restoration for your people. And God, there is so many people in this world who are hurting and who are broken, who are just dwelling in misery, and God, there is hope for them. And I just pray that if there is anyone in this room today, Father, who is in that situation, who feel like all hope is lost and there is no way out of their darkness or out of their dungeon, I pray, Father, that today you will reveal to them the true way. And that is through your chosen servant, our Messiah, Jesus. So I just ask, Father, that you please be with us today and that you will allow your word to speak to us and that you will truly do a great and mighty work. Lord, will you speak through me today? Allow us to truly hear your word. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Awesome. Y'all can be seated. But before we actually get into the meat of this uh, chapter, I just want to make something very clear here about the coming judgment that Isaiah has been speaking towards to the nation of Judah. This coming judgment is not unmerited. The nation of Judah have been walking in an adulterous relationship with God far too long and God has finally had enough. All throughout their history we see time and time again the adulterous self-centered heart of Israel. And I don't want us to miss this because we are not much different. They continually despised and rejected the covenants time and time again, whether it was the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the, or the covenant that he made with Moses, or with David. They would receive these covenants in the moment and enjoy the benefits of them for a season, but as soon as God would not give them what they wanted, what would they do? They would turn and, and walk away. They would despise and reject that covenant in which God has made with them. It was never a true covenantal relationship with God, but rather it was a contractual relationship with Him. So needless to say, the coming judgment was not a merit, but rather it was truly justified. The first 39 chapters of what we read in Isaiah are truly justified toward the nation of Judah. And we are not much different. But God, being righteous, holy, and just... 
He is, and he has every right to bestow this judgment because he has upheld his end of the covenant. In every way, he has fulfilled every promise and hope that he has ever given to his people. So he has every right to bestow this judgment upon not only the nation of Judah, but also upon us. Because he is perfect and righteous and just. But despite Judah breaking the covenant with God, God is going to do something that he does best every single time. And he's going to show love and compassion and mercy towards his people. And he's not only going to bring about justice towards the nation of Judah, but what we read in this passage is that he's going to bring justice about for all nations to everyone. And as a result of that, as a result of his justice being brought about, he's going to provide a way for all people to overcome this world and to enter into a true everlasting covenant with God once and for all forevermore. And that alone should give us great hope and great assurance and great joy. But in order for this to happen, his people and us, we must turn our eyes from the world and we must lift up their eyes, which is what the title of the sermon is. We must lift up our eyes to gaze upon the one true king who's able to bring about justice and restoration. We must lift up our eyes to see the one true king, allow him to bring about this true eternal covenant with him. Which leads me to the first point here. As we see in verse 1, we must see the one true servant, our eternal king. Now, I wanted to address something real quick. When we look at this word servant, where it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, this is not talking about the different servants that he has referenced in the past. This is not talking about Moses. This is not talking about Abraham. This is not talking about David, nor the nation of Israel or Judah at this time. But rather, when you look at the vocabulary being used here, we see that this is talking about the one true Messiah people. The true king. Because you see, at one point, Israel was indeed referred to as God's servant. However, due to her sin, she is no longer capable of fulfilling her duties as God's servant. She was not able to remain holy, righteous, and just. And because in the beginning, what God intended for the nation of Israel is for them to bring the knowledge and glory of the Lord to the world. That was their intended purpose, was for them as God's chosen people to go and bring the glory to the Lord. As we are God's chosen people, we are to go and do this. But time and time again, they failed. She ultimately failed and she revoked her title as servant. However, now there is one greater than she who is going to come and who's going to fulfill every aspect of the covenant. That is our true Messiah, Jesus. And when you look at the picture here and what we see in verse 1, and this is how we can be assured that this is talking about Jesus, our Messiah, is when you look at the picture, it is so, so similar to the one that is painted of Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3. Let me read this account to you. In verses 16 and 17 of Matthew 3, it says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
So when we look at Matthew 3 compared to verse 1 here in Isaiah 42, it is an identical picture. Let me listen to it. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. This is how we know that we are looking at the true chosen servant. It is so identical. But the picture doesn't stop there. Because in the second half of the verse here, when it says, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. When we look at that word justice, what we're seeing here is that this is no ordinary servant. You see, at this time, servants were not able to bring about justice. Only kings were able to bring about justice. And what's beautiful about this picture here is that this is just no ordinary king because he's not only going to bring about justice to his nation, but he's going to bring about justice to all nations. He will have power and dominion over everything. So I don't know about you, but this doesn't sound like, when we read verse 1, this doesn't sound like the nation of Israel, the adulterous people who have despised and rejected the covenant time and time again. No, this sounds like our one true king. So I just want to make that very clear of who the subject is in these verses. Which leads me to the second point, is that not only must we see the one true eternal king, but rather we must welcome the reign of this king. See, it's one thing to see the king, but it's a different thing to welcome the reign of the king. And we see that here in verses 2 through 4. And how the king will come and he will reign truly with humility. He will not come with boastful words. As it said there in verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. But rather, he's going to come with true humility. He's going to come with peace and with patience. And he's not only going to come, uh, or he's not going to come with boastful words, but he's also not going to come by force. He will not come seeking to destroy. As we see there in verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. A bruised reed, people, is just a, it's like a, a twig that is just on its last little fiber. It's almost completely broken. And most people, what they would do with that is break it and throw it away. It's useless. But what we're going to see here is that this Messiah is not going to come and break the reed, but rather he's going to come and he's going to restore it. He's going to, and he's going to create a kingdom full of broken reeds, people. That is us. And not only that, he's not going to come and, and he's not going to, bru- or a bruisery he will not break, or a faintly burning wick will he not quench. So he's not going to come and just smother out the candle that's fixing to go out, but rather he's going to come and reignite the flame, people. He will come with grace and peace and with great power and authority. He will come and reign with great gentleness and compassion. He will not look at the frailty and brokenness of humanity and seek to put it to its end. Nor will he seek to dim, or nor will he see the dimness of the world and seek to put it out, but rather he's going to breathe life back into it. And he desires to lead the, us, the broken people, back into restoration, and he will be faithful and loving while he leads us in truth. What we see here in verse 4 is that not only will he bring us back to restoration, but he is going to remain steadfast, he's going to be patient. He will not look at the despair of the world and be discouraged, but rather he will remain faithful to his people 
and he will uh, bring about justice and he will establish it on the earth. Right? As it says there, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is no ordinary king. Every earthly king gets impatient and they only worry about what they want in their kingdom. But rather, this is going to be a very patient and loving king who's going to wait for us. He is not going to give up on us. He's going to pursue us every single day. This is the exact picture that we see, though, of Christ in the New Testament Gospels. As God's chosen servant, Jesus came to fulfill the very thing that Israel could not ever fulfill. He perfectly executed and carried out the Father's will by bringing the knowledge and the glory of God into this world and to show it and display it for all to see. This is what a king does. This is what a true king does. He executes justice and truth. Which goes on to the next point here in verses 5 through 7. Not only must we see our one true king and welcome his reign, but rather we must receive the eternal covenant with the king. See, it's one thing to welcome the king, it's another thing to receive the, the covenant with the king. We must receive it. And what I want us to see here in these verses is that this covenant is so much different from the other covenants made with man because of who it's established through. It's not established through a mere man like Moses, but rather it is established through the Messiah, King Jesus. This covenant is so much different, and he will keep it. The Messiah will keep it and establish it forever. He will not carry it out alone. He will have the creator of the heavens and the earth and the giver of life and breath with him. As it says in verse 5, it says, Thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all who comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. The Lord will not leave nor forsake this chosen servant. He will be with him, and he will give him as a covenant for the people. And he will bring about great restoration through this covenant. As we see there in verse 7, he says to I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of those who sit in darkness. So he's going to come and he's going to give sight to the blind and he will bring prisoners out of darkness, out of their dungeon, and he will bring light into their darkness. Again, who does this sound like? When you look at the New Testament Gospels and all the miracles that were done, how many people did Jesus give sight to the blind to? Or how many people did he rescue from their, uh, their dominion of darkness? How many demons did he cast out? That is our king. And this is a beautiful picture for us because the very thing that the previous covenants with man intended to establish, they will finally be fulfilled through this Messiah. Because you see, Jesus did not come just to proclaim the new covenant. Jesus came to be the new covenant. 
And that through this covenant, Jesus does not, he does not only just open the eyes of the blind physically, but he opens the, uh, the eyes of the blind spiritually. He gives us new life. And he did not come just to bring light into the darkness, but rather he came to be the light into the darkness, illuminating it forevermore. For as it says in verse John 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And in Colossians 1.13 it says this. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Again, we are rescued from our domain of darkness and brought into the eternal everlasting light. The true Messiah. This is the covenant that our Messiah, King Jesus, has brought for us to receive. So my question for all of us in this room is, is one, have you received it? Or will you receive it? And experience the true greatness of our God. Going on to the next point here. Not only must we receive the eternal covenant with the king, but we must acknowledge the glory of the king. And we see that here in verses 8 through 9. We must give credit where credit is due. Because what we're seeing here in these verses is that God is pronouncing his glory and establishing it as his own. Because you've got to remember, what was the nation of Judah struggling with at this time? Idols. They were turning their eyes to other things. But God says, no, the glory is mine alone. It is no one else's. There's no carved idol that man can make that can compare to the goodness and the glory in which I have. It's not even just my glory now, but rather I have now bestowed it upon my chosen servant. For there is none like him. There are no idols or gods that can compare. The very things that enslaved his people, that placed him in the dungeons of darkness, they have no glory compared to God. So we must acknowledge this glory. For his glory and power are untouchable, unattainable. Nothing can compare, as I said, except for the one, his chosen one. The one whom he has chosen to bestow his glory upon. For as it says in Hebrews 1.3, it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is his true chosen servant. And in this moment, his deity is revealed. That was, that's what sets him apart from the rest of God's people. Is the fact that he is now... God in the flesh incarnate. And in verse 9, what we're seeing here as he says this, it says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So what we're seeing here is that God is now displaying his credentials. He is boasting in the things that he has fulfilled. He says, Everything that I have ever promised to you has been fulfilled up to this point. So why doubt me? And now I declare to you the next big thing, and you better believe that it's coming. Because if you don't believe it, you're going to miss out. God's track record is perfect. He has fulfilled everything that he has ever promised, and he will continue to do so. And by God fulfilling his promises and prophecies in the, all throughout the Old Testament, it gives us great credibility of the gospel. This gives us great assurance of what we truly believe in. 
Because if God did not fulfill at least one of those prophecies in the Old Testament, he's not God. But he fulfilled every single prophecy that he had ever given. He had fulfilled every promise that he told his people. And this should give us great assurance. So if anybody here today is questioning the, the, the validity of the gospel, I challenge you just to read through all the Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled and allow that to speak to your heart. Because that alone is a testimony in itself that should give you assurance and hope in the gospel and the validity of the gospel and that it is true and that it is active and that our King Jesus is alive today and he is reigning forevermore in heaven. And if that's not enough, the fact that we're studying this passage today should be enough evidence of that. The fact that we are studying this text today that was foretold over 700 years before the Messiah actually appeared, that should be enough evidence for you. The fact that we are still studying it today. It's pretty incredible. Which leads me to our last point this morning. Is that we should ultimately praise the one true king. And we see that here in these last few verses. Because you see, as a result of seeing the sovereignty and the power of God all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout his creation and through the spiritual matters, there is no other suitable position for us to take other than of one of worship. Who are we to think that we can stand before a holy and righteous God thinking that we are capable of being in his presence? None of us are. We all need to fall on our knees and worship him as a result of who he is and as a result of what he has done through his chosen servant. So as a result of not only just seeing the true king and welcoming his reign and receiving his eternal covenant and acknowledging his glory, we should praise him all the days of our lives. This must be our most natural position. Worshiping. And I'm so thankful that we are a church that truly worships. So as we go, as we wrap up and go into a time of invitation, I want to extend an opportunity for anyone who is here today, whether they know the Lord or not, to lift up their eyes. Lift up your eyes and to acknowledge the one true king, whether it's literally lifting up your eyes or just spiritually lifting up your eyes. But lift up your hearts to him today and allow him to bring the peace that surpasses all understanding into your heart, into your mind today. Acknowledging, as, uh, acknowledging him as he deserves the great and powerful creator God of all the universe. And receiving the greatest covenant the world has ever seen through his chosen servant. And what we just looked at today, the one who is, uh, the one whom he is pleased to dwell with the one whom he has chosen from before time began. May we acknowledge him today. And if anyone here today, if, if anyone's here today and you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior of your life, this Messiah, which we're looking at, 
The one who has come and who has fulfilled this prophecy. The one who not only came, but died and rose again to be sitting at the right hand of the Father for the rest of eternity. This Jesus, who is capable of bringing life back into dead bones. If you do not know him today, I pray that you will truly consider it. I know it's a very intimidating thing. We as humans don't like to surrender. We don't like to give up. We don't like to turn ourselves over to another being so that they can lead us and guide us. It's not in our nature because we're, we're selfish. We're, we're, we're sinful. But let me tell you something. It is the most freeing thing that you'll ever experience in your life. To know that you don't have to worry about tomorrow and what the world may throw at you it is a truly freeing thing. So don't hesitate. Because ultimately, we're not promised tomorrow. So if you're thinking, oh, it's okay, not, not today. I'm not really feeling it today. That's a terrible excuse. Because tomorrow, you may not be feeling nothing. <laughs> but if you guys have any questions, like I said, and you would like to come down, Victor and I will both be standing down here ready and willing to pray with you guys to answer any questions that we may have. And as I said, I know it's kind of intimidating to come down to the front in front of other people. So if you are intimidated by that, I just challenge you to just stick around. We'll be here. Come find us after the service. Don't hesitate, okay? But I'd like to close with one last passage. Just bear with me. It's back in the book of Psalms. It's Psalms 121. I want to read this to you guys because it should give us great hope. It says this in Psalm 121, verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever more. So may we lift our eyes today and acknowledge and worship this one true king. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you so much for this time. We thank you for the fact that we can come together as your people and study your word freely without fear. And God, I just pray that we will take advantage of every opportunity. Because there will be a day where we will not be able to do this. And I pray, Father, that we will all be ready for that day. But God, we just thank you for the hope and the assurance that we can find in your words, even in the words that were, that were spoken 700 years before they were even fulfilled in the coming Messiah. And the fact that he is now living and active. He did come. He did live a perfect life in the flesh. And he died the perfect death for all of us. And he is now raised at the right hand of you, Father, living for all eternity. And I just pray, Father, that if anyone is here today and they do not know who this King Jesus is, Father, they will come to know him in a very real way today. Life is too short. We're not promised tomorrow. So I pray that the decision 
that needs to be made today will be made. But God, we give you all the glory and all the praise because it is not us. That, it's not by our works. It's not by our deeds that we are truly saved. But Father, it is by the grace and the love and the compassion of what you have for us as your people. Lord, we acknowledge that you are good. And we praise you all the days of our lives. It's in Christ's name. Amen.